Welcome to the 15th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Today we are joined by Philip Orchard, an analyst at Geopolitical Futures, a future-focused organization founded by renowned strategist and forecaster George Friedman. Before Philip began creating forecasts, risk assessments, and reports for GPF, he worked as an analyst for Stratfor, a geopolitical risk firm also based in Texas. Interestingly enough, however, Philip has also been based in uh, Thailand uh, for, the, for the entirety of his career. Um, focusing on East Asia and Indo-Pacific, Philip has become quite the expert on all things Asian security and Chinese geopolitics, both of which we are excited to unpack today. So without further ado, welcome, welcome to the show, Philip. Uh, very happy to be here. Appreciate it. Um, so I think to get started, we were wondering if, we, if uh, you could give you know our listeners some background as to um, you know who you are, how you got to GPF, um, and just how you got into the world of geopolitical risk in general. Right. Uh, yeah. So as you mentioned, I was uh, used to work at um, Stratfor, and then from there ended up at Geopolitical Futures, where we um, provide or we do yeah forecasting and analysis of of anything and everything uh, geopolitical related. Um, I got into it. Um, my wife and I were living in rural Thailand um, a, a while back in the mid two thousands, and um, I we got there at a time when the of immense political unrest and um, uh, social or political violence and and so forth. And we just kind of dropped into it. I didn't know a thing about Thailand, Thai politics, Thai history, the social divides, the power struggles, any of that stuff. But it became personal really quickly when we we took a wrong turn trying to get to our walk back to our hotel in Bangkok and got caught up in uh, in a riot and um, next thing we know, the prime minister is giving us a fruit basket in the in, a, in the hospital where we ended up. Um, long story short, but point being is that from the, starting with that, I just got obsessed with under, trying to understand what the heck was going on and why. And I think I probably couldn't, uh, probably wouldn't have, uh, didn't realize it at the time, but I think uh, in my mind, it was like if I if I understand this, if I know everything, if I if I can understand, uh, just be <laughs> if I could just figure this out from top to bottom, then I can prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Um, and between that, and then I was also doing some work with a conflict resolution organization in Myanmar, and then just like traveling around to the Southeast Asia to uh, places, you know, like Vietnam, and wondering like why the heck. What? Why? Why did we go to war with this place or Laos? And like, why did we drop so much, so much, uh, so many bombs on this this very empty, very uh, polite country? Um, you know, trying to under, grapple with the Khmer Rouge or uh, seeing China's rise and its effect on the region in real time. Uh, I just, I, I just got obsessed with this stuff. And um, about that time, my wife's grandfather started sending me articles from Stratfor. And I, I just, I, had, I guess I just hadn't read any uh, analysis like that, that really laid out a framework of understanding, um, basically describing the force, sort of the story behind the story of the underlying forces that were shaping the, what was going on at any particular time. Um, 
describing things in terms of power and in terms of um, the, the you know, all the different uh, underlying forces that really shape a country's behavior and, and dictate its, or not dictate, but um, uh, influence its history and, and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I was just uh, really taken by it. And I, I wasn't, at the time I was actually still uh, pretty skeptical of forecasting because my entire experience overseas early on was just learning how little I knew about anything and and just feeling foolish all the time for whatever I thought I whatever I used to think I, I knew about how the world works and what makes countries tick um, but once I got into so I started working at Stratfor and once I got into uh, doing analysis there it quickly became overwhelmed with just how much um, yeah, just how many factors and or just how much there is to know to really write intelligent, intelligently or credibly about a place. And that's when I got in, started to really appreciate like forecasting methodologies and, and um, like structured analytic techniques and that kind of stuff as a way of just making it much more efficient and learning how to ask the right questions, learning how to basically get smart on unfamiliar on things that are that were far outside of my area of expertise uh, really quickly, quickly enough to be able to uh, say something smart and get, give readers or clients a sense of where things were going. Do you have sort of like a framework for what those questions are in terms of trying to sort of get up to speed on a place or a, or a situation or sort of geopolitical pairing that, you know, has some sort of historical and still modern relevance? Are, are there, is, is there a framework that you, that you have in terms of what questions you're trying to answer? Yeah. I mean, of, of course it, it varies from issue to issue, place to place, but um, so we, just to describe sort of our methodology, um, we, it's very much uh, one of you guys were talking about Marco Papich's book about how he focused on interests and constraints and that kind of stuff. And that's very much um, the core to our, uh, our, the basis of our methodology is, is just looking at, yeah, what, in, on any particular issue, like what's the interest here? What would they, what would, what would a country like to do and what's gonna stop it from you know, succeeding or, or, or so forth? Um, but the way we, the way we go about, um, like, sort of the basis of our forecasting process starts with what we call with, with these country models that we develop, um, where we we really take a holistic view of geopolitics and try to connect all the dots between military factors, strategic factors, security, politics, economics, technology, cultural factors. All the you know try to really, um, and I think that's often our value add is being able to show how. Um, an economic issue is also a military issue or, or so forth. Um, and how they converge to shape a country's behavior. Um, so we, we have these country models where, that are um, based on, um, we start with what we call, ident or identifying what we call geopolitical imperatives, like the th usually three to five things that like over time, in different ways, the country has little choice but to pursue. Um, and then in those should, you know, those t tend to be very high level, pretty static. Uh, they can change over time as, as, as the world changes, but. Um, How broad are these? Are they like securing borders, economic growth, like those sort of high level yeah. imperatives? So for example, um, so let's say China, uh, 
um, with China, we it starts, you know, these things. There should be things that are evident going pretty deep into history. So uh, for China, their foremost imperative would be securing the or, or controlling the Han heartland, and then from there, it's controlling its buffer zones, um, and then from there, uh, you can break it down in different ways. A newer one that we've, you know, that's been introduced over the past, really over the past, you know, 30, 40 years is the need to control access to the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean Basin. And then, so when we build those out, um, or once you identify those, which, you know, they're not too controversial, um, we nest down different, how those uh, influence grand strategies, then strategies and then tactics, uh, how, you know, the different ways over time that countries will pursue um, things. Uh, that, that's sometimes useful and that making actual forecast on like modern day issues, like, uh, you know, um, sometimes it, depending on the country, depending on the issue, um, but it is a, a way to develop a pretty in-depth understanding of a place and what has made it tick over time. Um, and then when we take modern, you know, current day issues that were or things on the horizon that we're trying to forecast, um, we use those to shape our understanding of what's going on to an extent, and then try to really break it break it down into, um, well, again, we use those to sort of uh, paint or to understand like the processes that are unfolding at any given time, and then project those forward, and then try to identify specific factors that um, will influence how, or specific variables that will influence uh, how things will, which direction things will go for, going forward. And when you get it and the more you drill down, then you eventually start at, you know, getting to like causal mechanisms and that kind of stuff. And so you have to ask very specific questions about, okay, like um, if there's a, say there's a mass uprising somewhere and the, if the question is, will the, the regime survive? Well, um, what, you know, what's the mechanism that um, would, how does, how do mass protests in the streets translate to a leader losing power or something like that, you know? And so those, once you, the more you, the deeper you drill down on it, the more you have to break it down into actual tangible questions. And um, I, this is all abstract, but um, but it's in practice, it's it's it's, a, it's fun to do and it's worthwhile to do and um, irrespective of, of whether your forecast is accurate, I think it's just a, a rigorous way to make sure you're being specific about what kind of questions you're actually asking, uh, figuring out, identifying the, the most important things that will de determine which way it goes and, and so forth. So I read on LinkedIn um, that, you know, some of these forecasts that you're building, um, you know, like the time horizon for some of them is, is 10 years out. And something that Chloe and I have been thinking about with some of the forecasts that we do is, you know, if the time horizon is, um, you know, on Metacula, sometimes they have like 2050 forecast or 2100 um, even. <laughs> yeah, really long time horizons. We feel like after 10 years, um, like the level of uncertainty just gets to the point where it's really hard to forecast anything accurately. Uh, you know, how, how do you think about sort of time horizons with your forecast and like, yeah, do you see a certain cutoff? Um, yeah, I, I mean, so my, my boss was probably most famous from the book, The Next 100 Years. Um, and <laughs> his, 
his you know his predictions for what's going to happen in 2080 are uh, we'll say debatable at best. Um, but I, I I think it's still I think long term forecasting is mostly useful again for as an analytical process more than um, if anyone's making bets on yeah what's <laughs> what anyone says is going to happen in 2065 or something probably not a good idea but um, the pro the process. Uh, on that on that kind of scale, the the exercise of identifying um, processes that are underway, that are unfolding, how like the the historical sweep uh, is moving forward into the future, what could alter it, what countries want, what countries need. Um, so those static imperatives that I was talking about, like um, or those more you know, mostly static imperatives. Uh, yeah, I, I, it is. It, I think it's, it's sort of like yeah. less like the forecast and what like the analysis sort of like reveals to you about a, a situation in term and like what sort of storylines you might be sort of like looking out for like in into the future. Yeah, it's it's like thinking about uh, thinking about things a hundred years from now is a good way to understand a place now. I guess mm -hmm. is is or it can be at least. So when we do so on a ten year horizon, it's it's a little bit more doable. Um, you can. More accurately gauge what you know the conditions that are going to, or you know, just the world's not going to look fundamentally different ten years from now. Um, but so what we do for clients is, um, yeah, again, it's same sort of stuff. We just say like these are the the main drivers that are are shaping this country's behavior that are defining this uh, inter intersection between these two countries, uh, or or multiple countries. Um, and then here are the four or five things that will the most important variables that will determine how they play out. Um, and then we try to you know we will we'll do we'll weight them and provide some sort of um, a tool like a, a a metrics for gauging uh, how the forecast is like where we are in the forecast going forward. But I, the main benefit is not the discrete outcomes or predictions that we make yet. Or, I mean, often people want that, and they kind of they get upset when we're like, when we are hedging too much, and we're like, well, I can't imagine trying to make decisions on this stuff. If, I mean, I could tell you, I can make a prediction about what's where, what Xi Jinping's going to be doing in ten years. So I don't think you want me to, um, but um, but more just describing you know, the the conditions that are that currently exist, how what's going to yeah how the how they'll unfold going forward, and and. Just to inform their decision making, give them a, a structure, a fr framework of understanding these complex issues, simplifying them a little bit, and then giving them a sense of what likely challenges they're going to have to navigate. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it does. It. Do you think that like could you sort of like operationalize that like in terms of understanding, say, the current tensions between the U.S. and China? Uh, in part, sort of how it's shifted over, like the COVID nineteen pandemic, and uh, you know, using that sort of framework, what that might say about the next ten years. Yes, uh, yeah. That, so China is a good example of, and you, um, so with yeah the the say U.S. China competition or Cold War two point or however you know different ways to describe it. Um, we would. For us, it would start. We would look internally on, in both countries and say, like, okay, what's what's really keeping the leader, their leaders, up at night? And so, 
the CPCs, you know, the dominant things that they are worried about are uh, political stability, right? Uh, and therefore, uh, stable employment, uh, s stable inflation, that kind of stuff. Um, Demographic uh, growth. Yeah. Um, so the, what they the thing they want most is is stability. They want to stay in charge. They want to stay in power, and they want stability. Uh, so from that, you can you can be like, okay, um, what how will that affect their trade policies? Uh, um, how will that affect their um, their drive to indigenize technologies and that kind of stuff? Um, and it, and so and then and then how does that what does the U.S. think of that? And it would, it would do the opposite process with the U.S. building it forward. And so, um, and so we're pretty. Uh, I'm pretty. I'm not optimistic about U.S.-China relations getting any better anytime soon. And I wasn't not wasn't at all surprised that there hasn't that the Biden administration hasn't departed from the in broad strokes the Trump era policies toward China um, because. Like my, our, I would look at the you know, historically, there China's um, China's rise has challenged um, or has created this set of these different problems for the U.S. Or uh, historically, the U.S. has been distracted elsewhere, or there's been too too much money to be made in China for there to be some sort of coalition to emerge that um, to really start viewing China as a, as a, like a strategic threat or a major rival or anything like that. Um, but between their China's ability to distort markets, their ability to overturn the balance of power in the US or in the Western Pacific, uh, between their human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and so forth, you, you, it's not, it was, it's on, in broad strokes, it's not going to be a partisan issue in the U.S. Uh, there's there's something as a there's something for everyone to hate, you know, or something ever, for everyone to fear, and therefore the U.S., which in general has very has a has a lot of difficulty mobilizing uh, or sort of getting everyone on the same page to actually address uh, emerging challenges um, due to its internal uh, political system and its lack, it, its sort of um, the difficulty the U.S. usually often has, like understanding and wielding its own power in effective ways. Um, those things are being replaced by a more clear focus on on all the things China is doing, and therefore, um, we're the the in broad in the big picture the. The tensions are going to persist and deepen uh, because neither side is interested or willing to back down. Neither side is interested and willing to make the other capitulate. And so um, we're in for a, a, it's going to be a rough few years. Um, that's all pretty high level stuff. And but then you look on very specific issues like say Taiwan. Uh, you start okay, like well, how does this play out? And you look at things like okay, what can China actually do to make uh, Taiwan. What is China? What would it be in China's interest to do to um, to pull Taiwan back into the fold, or at least keep it from straying too far, and so forth? You know, and that's where you go from there. So that was really interesting. I want to take a step back and just ask, um, you know, and maybe it is 
thinking about issues like that, like U.S. China tensions. But what is your favorite, you know, part about working at Geopolitical Futures? Um, you know, I'm also curious about the sorts of clients that you're working with. If it is a lot of tech clients, or you know, more government clients, you know, does that factor into what you enjoy about the job? You know, the clients that you're working with, or is it you know something else, something more meta? Um, I mean the. Uh, the, at the most basic level, it's just—I mean—it's just an awful lot of fun, and I, I like the audacity of trying to predict the world, you know, and, and for and um, just on a personal level, like I'm—you know—I've never—I'm not a, an economist. I—I've um, never driven a submarine. I'm not a um, an expert in r rocketry. I'm not a scholar in Chinese politics or Japanese politics or whatever. Um, I am very much generous, but I just the process of of um of getting smart on a lot of things and to the point where at least i can write credibly or you know that kind of stuff it, it, it is cool when i look back and be like oh yeah i, I um i i know a lot i know a little about a lot and uh, enough to like uh, you know bore people at dinner parties with on a lot of different <laughs> subjects um but yes, yeah, so, I mean it's just it, it's just I'm not, you know I, I, every morning I wake up I'm excited to see see what I missed you know and, and see see how the the great story of the world is unfolding in on um, these you know six or seven countries that I, I spend the most time reading about um, and I, I think and I think that's key to being good at, at at forecasting or just geopolitical analysis in general is like you really got to love it because it is. Uh, it is over can be overwhelming and it can be dismaying and it can be um, I don't know uh, you, you have to the if you if you love it you you'll be motivated to to do the work and to stay up on everything and to be constantly uh, pursuing more and more uh, you know uh, more and more knowledge and expertise and understanding of, of uh, how things work. That 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 is so true. That idea of just getting really getting like somewhat smart about like a lot of different subjects and being like a lot of fun. I, I was reflecting to Andrew, I think like last weekend about like, if you look back at all of the forecasts we've done, we've covered almost the entire globe, everything ranging from like public health to, to cyber, to, to uh, cyber attacks. And um, they wouldn't have been sort of subjects that we probably would have gotten smart about if we weren't doing forecasts. And it's uh on on reflection we've definitely gained a lot of uh dinner night knowledge that uh <laughs> someone one day will appreciate um speaking of you know forecasts and all of that is there a particular forecast that stands out to you the most whether it's you just really enjoyed learning about a subject that you you know otherwise would have had no exposure to uh, or maybe a forecast that you just got super correct while everyone else was you know, being a sheep and missing all these wonderful signals that uh, you were able to find yourself. Uh, do you, does a forecast come to mind? Uh, so I, I actually, uh, uh, I found the Trump era to be actually surprisingly easy to forecast uh, in terms of, um, which was a little bit, which was unexpected. And I kind of expected when he, one to really challenge our model and our way of doing things to to the core, our, our, our specifically our sense that like individual leaders 
generally don't matter nearly as much as as often people often think and that they are bound by tight constraints of the office and they cannot deviate too much in general from the national interest or whatever um but in trump being so unpredictable himself uh seemed like or in so determined to kind of uh, shed the orthodox way of thinking about the presidency um so to answer your question uh so I was I was proud of the work I did on the U.S. North Korea negotiations because also North Korea is another like country that you would think would be very difficult to forecast and on, on a lot of issues it absolutely is there's just so hard to get good information and uh, and so forth uh, but on that on that kind of thing on like a bilateral negotiation where both sides were and that the good thing about Trump from a forecasting perspective is he was very transparent about what he wanted and what and you could tell the four or five things he cared about to actually push forward. Uh, and in a bilateral negotiation, it it's, makes it does make it a, quite a bit easier to be like to zero in on discrete on a range of possible outcomes. Um, like they want this, they they want this, they have the this side has the ability to push uh, or to pressure in this way, this side has this much ability to resist that pressure and then, you know, just build out, map out all the different, you know, factors that could affect things. Um, and pretty early on, I, th I think we nailed, um, I, I, right after the, within like a week of the <laughs> Singapore summit, um, I think we nailed uh, basically like what, what, how the, the next couple of years were gonna go in terms of that negotiation basically uh, forecasted a that the most that they would achieve is a a tacit agreement on uh, some sort of freeze for freeze uh, where North Korea freezes ICBM testing and nuclear tests um, and the U.S. freezes some level of exercises with South Korea and then agrees to uh, vague uh, makes vague commitments to do something else. So we're really like not changing a whole lot, but allowing both sides to back away from the fire and fury days of 2017. And so um, that, that was instructive because I had to learn a lot about missile technology. I had to learn a lot about internal um, constraints in Pyongyang about um, like how much, like, okay, well, how, what can they actually give? Is it in, in, in pursuit of a deal? Let's say the US is willing to lift sanctions. Um, you know, uh, what can uh, North Korea, how much of their reactor complex could they dismantle and still have a viable uh, ability to enrich uranium and so forth? Uh, do, how much do they really need ICBMs as opposed to these shorter range missiles? Uh, and so just thinking through all that stuff and, and um, it, was, it was interesting and a lot of fun. And uh, even if even if the kind of stuff, I say fun, but you know what I mean? Uh, it's um, you know, like, ah, uh -huh nuclear nuclear war it's this is great um but um but it was it was yeah i was i was proud of the proud of the work we did on that and then similarly on the trade war because again uh trump was very pretty transparent about what they uh what he wanted uh china we had a pretty good sense of what they were willing to give up uh and the big question was like could the us actually hurt them and uh, could they or hurt them to the point where like China would have to give up more than it wanted? 
uh, with with through the tariffs and stuff. And we pretty you know so we had to figure out okay how much um, how much damage are these tariffs going to do to China compared to how much uh, damage will U.S. tariffs and Chinese counter tariffs do to the U.S. economy? What sectors do they have? What kind of political influence are we talking about? Um, and again, uh, you know, we, we weren't hyper specific. We weren't able to be like, okay, they're going to um, have this level of tariffs on these specific sectors, you know. Um, but we were able to we say China's not going to give up on these things, and uh, they're just going to try to wait the U.S. out and with and push it into election season. And that's basically uh, what worked out. So, so yeah, uh, bilateral negotiations are are the are among the easier things to forecast. I think. So, do you think it's easier to forecast geopolitics now? You know, going into this new administration, is it too early to really make an assessment? Um, and is it is it harder now than it was, say, during the Obama administration? And is that you know, in some ways, due to the sh you know going back from bilateral to multilateral or is that the u.s um r relative decline in the year since do you have a sense yeah so the tricky thing about the u.s in general is is it faces fewer constraints than any country in the world and i don't mean like it can do whatever it wants it, I, 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 okay it's, uh... Uh, <laughs> still throw me off um i don't mean it, it that the U.S. can do and succeed at whatever it wants, but it can try whatever it wants. It can start a war somewhere and fail. It can uh, it can pursue bad policies at home and abroad and never pay that much of a cost in terms of like, and you know, it's not going to put itself the nation at existential risk in the way that like a, you know, the smaller country picked a fought a, a war that was strategically unwise or uh, hopeless or you know. Uh, Smaller, weaker countries tend to be a lot more careful about what they do. Um, so that can that makes the U.S. difficult because um, to predict in terms of what it's going to prioritize, uh, because there's it doesn't really have to um, do it in the same way. Um, but what the U.S. does prioritize is um, is I think more predict or once you kind of understand what what a particular administration is going to you know put shove all its uh, political capital into or that kind of stuff, um, it, it it's I think it does get easier. And with the Biden administration, it's I think it's just a little bit more conventional um, in terms of uh, strategic thinking and that kind of stuff. Um, and so yeah, it was pretty. It was no surprise to see them uh, emphasize prioritizing uh, building up coalitions in the Indo-Pacific and uh, assuaging, you know, trying to paper over some of the deep tensions that it has, it has with a lot of its allies and that kind of stuff. Um, so the, the next level would be, okay, what can it actually do with that? What can it get these countries to agree to and, and, and so forth? So um, I'm curious when you're thinking about forecasting bilateral relations or what's going to happen with certain regimes, how how useful do you think it is to um, to to look at priors and look at base rates, um, you know, versus just do sort of ad hoc analysis 
Um, I know that there's some theories in political science about like presidential cycles, for example, and like, you know, you can sort of trace, um, you know, the cycle to see where you are and what role that president is within the cycle. Um, you know, do you think about frameworks like that or is it, yeah, I'm just curious, like how you think about that? Yeah, not not rigorously enough. I, I do think I do think that that kind of stuff is absolutely can be absolutely useful. Um, it, it's we uh, personally, I guess I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff kind of intuitively. Um, uh, and when I would I have a on any particular place or issue, I have you know I have uh, we have in our internal models that we'll refer to and stuff. Um, and then go to sources for understanding like how to how to break down a particular issue into its component parts and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I yeah I, I think there's a lot of room for growth in our um, adoption of of best practices and and um, I always think they're fascinating and useful and um, to to various extents, but it kind of depends on the issue. And, what do you think the hurdle is in terms of, you know, adopting a lot of the best practices coming out of the more uh, research oriented side of the forecasting space, whether that's coming out of UPenn or USC's uh, Future of Humanity Institute at, at Oxford, you know, those researchers who are unveiling these sort of best practices, it seems like there's a lag with adoption that happens sort of everywhere. But do you have a sense um, what some of those sort of factors might be? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, a lot of it's just bandwidth or time. Um, I mean, as you guys know, I mean, it just it takes an extraordinary amount of work uh, to to put together any particular thing. And especially since I'm such a generalist, it, um, I feel like I still feel like I'm always scrambling just to get my head around a thousand things at once. Um, but it, it, to what I was saying earlier, I mean, that's the whole point of these of these frameworks is to um, is to make it more efficient and to make it so that you don't have to be the world's foremost expert on something to to make a forecast. Like just learn how to, uh, learn how to yeah develop adopt a framework that makes it easier to ask the right questions, to do the right research, to channel your energy into the right places. Um, but it, it's um, it, it is tough. We we also we kind of intentionally narrow the scope of what we focus on based on our in our own constraints as a company. Um, and we try to, we mo mostly focus on things that will connect back to our models and then um, and our, that way we're capable of constantly challenging them, challenging ourselves, uh, addressing our, you know, re reassessing uh, whether our models are still accurate or whether they need to be more specific or whether they are, um, you know, fundamentally wrong. I just have one more question before we um, maybe get into some rapid fire questions in just a sec. Um, but I was wondering, you know, do you think that there are um, certain similarities um, or you know, like uniform ways of approaching forecasting between like geopolitical features, Strat4, Oxford Analytica, like Eurasia Group, like all these firms that are doing forecasting. Um, like, are there certain programs maybe that everybody uses at all these shops or like a certain um, framework like you're talking about that's pretty common? 
Yeah, I can't speak you know, specifically to to these other places except for Stratfor. Um, but you, you can kind of tell who's who's doing the doing rigorous you know work behind the scenes based on what they publish. Um, I, you know, our model is 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 our own. Uh, it's obviously very similar to the one that we use at Stratfor. It's built off a lot of the work that was done there. Um, it's a little bit different because it's um, because we're smaller and so. Uh, the, the the great thing about Stratfor was we did have uh, much bigger teams and more depth of expertise. You know, I didn't have to be the uh, I could ask someone who knew a lot about rocketry uh, rather than having to figure it all out myself. Um, but uh, but the basic structure is 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 the same. All right, and that brings us to the staple of the end of the show: the rapid fire round. Um, Philip, in this in this round, we are going to give you not the usual four, but a very special five questions that you will make rapid fire forecasts. The last question yeah, is is tailored in part towards your expertise um, uh, regarding Asian foreign policy. But we will start you off easy warm up with some of our usual rapid fire forecasts. The first one is what is the likelihood that Russia annexes more territory in Eastern Europe officially by 2026? Wait, ooh. Um, no. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, my, my problem is, uh, I think I'm good at this, but I'm not fast. Because uh, I'll think through every possible scenario and then I'll uh, my brain will eventually uh, catch on fire. Um, <laughs> but I'll try not to do that in real time. Um, yeah, I would say, um, hmm. What are you sort of keeping in mind? What, what are the factors? Yeah. Uh, I, so yes, well, the way I would approach that is just, okay. Um, we know that China or we, our view is that Russia has a core imperative to push out, to build out buffer zones. Um, it also has a, uh, it's vulnerable to, economic coercion in form of sanctions and that kind of stuff. It also, it's very willing to challenge narratives about their uh, uh, challenge assumptions about other countries' willingness to, uh, to combat it. Um, it's also making all sorts of inroads and in, sophisticated uh, tech capabilities in like cyberspace and so forth. Um, so it, I would say, okay, um, it probably thinks it could get away with pushing more into, uh, say, if it had a reason to deeper into parts of Ukraine, uh, or perhaps if, if things went sour, um, or things went against it in Belarus, um, it would it would believe that it could do it without paying much of a cost. And it has a good reason to. So therefore, um, I would say, I would say, sixty percent chance uh, by twenty twenty six that it makes another move. Maybe right. even higher than that. Well, I'm gonna say 70 Seventy. 70. All yeah, right. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, the second one should be a little bit easier. Uh, what is the likelihood that there is credible evidence of alien life by twenty thirty? So this can be single cellular organisms currently alive or traces of that, whether that's on Europa, Mars, Venus, 
That could also be uh, credible techno signatures, UFOs, uh, radio sounds in space, all the other ones that people that know a lot more about this can 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 reference. Uh, likelihood alien life by 2030. 2030. Uh, I would say I'm just going to move quickly. Uh, I'll say uh, 10%. Uh, my thinking being is um, there are capabilities of detecting such things uh, in in person or with uh, by sending ships or people uh, out to uh, to the outer reaches of the solar system is very slow to evolve. These these takes a long time to get to Europa. Um, and our ability to look and listen into space while advancing has been is already pretty sophisticated, and if, um, it, it seems unlikely that uh, we would not. Um, there's not going to be a dramatic. We're not going to suddenly have a dramatic leap in capabilities to detect things we couldn't before. Got 10%. it. Um, next one is what is the likelihood that there is an Olympic boycott? by a majority of the quad and the five eyes in 2022 for the Beijing Olympics. So a majority of the US, UK, um, Australia, New Zealand, in, and never going to get them quad, the the quad and, and the five eyes. That's okay. Everyone knows because we said this question on every single podcast. All right. It's Australia, Canada, New Zealand, UK, US. India, South Korea, and whoever the last member of the quad is. Japan. Japan. Uh, India, Aust South Korea is not in the quad. Um, but oh, th that could be another question. Will they join the quad? Um, uh, okay, Olympic boycott. Um, uh, I'm going to say, um, uh, I'm going to go low and say again, 10%. Um, it's too close. Uh, there, there's certainly interest in doing so, but there's also at this point, great interest in, in not antagonizing China and China is not competition with China has not reached the point to where, uh, to levels that led to boycotts in the past, uh, between the, for example, the U S and Russia or the Soviets. Okay. Um, question for the penultimate question. Um, what is the likelihood that Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize diplomatic ties by 2025? Uh, we'll go with, hmm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 55%, more likely than not, uh, from the sense that I don't think um, the biggest constraint on doing that for Saudi Arabia is ostensibly is its political opposition. Um, I don't think uh, that is intense enough to, to stop them from cooperating. We're already seeing a process unfolding um, toward that direction. And the dirty little secret in the region is um, the Gulf monarchies don't really care that much about Palestine and aren't really that upset about Israel anymore. So 55%. Curious, what, what would that likelihood be if King Salman died? Yeah, I don't. Um, hmm. uh, it's like MBS is in town. Yeah. Uh, I guess it goes yeah. up, right? Yeah, that'd be my. I think it probably goes up. Yeah, and I don't, I, MBS is such a wild card, though. I could see him ending up in a situation where um, 
he alienates so many people at home that he needs to adopt some sort of populist anti-Israel stance to shore up his, if there's a you know, major power struggle, if he is firmly in charge and not threatened at home uh, and has the, you know, and is delivering on, on his, all his grand promises to, to build out Neom and, and have um, the entire Saudi population uh, moving around on hoverboards and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would, I think he's, yeah, it would go up, I'll say 65%. All right, and then our last question, the one that's gonna leverage some of your expertise. Um, what do you think the odds are that there's a flare up in the South China Sea before 2023 that results in um, more than 10 deaths from any single country? That's so we can sort of give context for scale of, of a flare up. Okay, uh, by 2023, um, like in the next year and a half, 18 months. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it's pretty low, uh, less than 20%. Um, no, nobody wants, it, it would have to almost be an accidental conflict. Um, the, the, the only, the Philippines isn't going to start a fight. Malaysia is not going to start a fight. Um, and China is very good at pushing the envelope and then backing off without uh, letting things reach a crisis point. Um, so it would have to be some sort of, uh, it'd have to be some sort of conflict that starts or that escalates unintentionally uh, between probably between the US and, um, and China. And if the US was for some reason, which is unlikely really wanted to go after China, uh, it wouldn't happen in the South China Sea. It would happen elsewhere. Uh, further out away from um, along the choke points where it could impose some sort of blockade against, uh, against China. Well, there you have it. That is our rapid fire completed. Well done. We will make sure to get back to you in 2023, 2026 <laughs> and 2030 and let you know how those panned out. Um, <laughs> No updates allowed. Um, so you are now That's wed right. to that forecast for for all of at most uh, eight eight and a half years. So uh, we hope they were the best rapid forecasts that you've ever made. Well, by then I'll be living on Europa, and I can answer that. <laughs> I will uh, be the alien by that point. <laughs> uh, so Philip, where can all of our our listeners find you? Find what you are doing over at. Uh, geopolitical futures, um, all that great stuff. Um, yeah, it's our website is geopoliticalfutures.com. It's kind of a mouthful, um, but um, that's where most of my stuff is published. I am on Twitter at Philip Orchard with uh, Philip with two L's, uh, all one word. Um, and then, yeah, I, my work pops up from time to time in random other outlets. So often I'm like real, real cl clear world, and there's a there's a uh, an Indian blog that um, republishes all my stuff without asking all the time, and, and, and I'm fine with that. So, um. <laughs> well, everyone on the screen right now, you can find his his Twitter. It'll also be linked in the description below, uh, as will a link to your most recent piece for, uh, in geopolitical futures. All right, cool. Philip, this was uh, great having you on. Love the conversation. Uh, and hopefully you'll join us again sometime in the future. Yeah, thank you so much.
Absolutely. I'm enjoying your guys' stuff. All right. And that is the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, episode 15 with guest Philip Orchard. Thanks, everyone. Bye.